0: Well, built into every young dad is this innate desire. It's this innate desire to do, at about nine months to a year in their kids' lives, the dad toss. Men, do you know what I'm talking about? Moms, do you know what I'm talking about? When somehow, in some way, your your husband grabs your kid and starts tossing them in the air like it's no big deal, and you're wondering what they are doing? This is built into every man that I know. And about nine months this happened with our Oldest, and the first few times I did it, he had this big look on his face, like, What in the world are you doing to me? But then he began to love it. And I would toss him up a little bit higher and a little bit higher, and he didn't know how to say it, but he kept doing this more, 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 much to mom's chagrin. And then for my oldest, I would toss him high in the air praying that his feet would not come forward and catch him and he wanted more and more and more and with him uh, he enjoyed the bed option better and so I would toss him in the bed you know when they're little like they can't bend they're just short enough so they don't whiplash on the bed and so I would throw him up in the air and he was laughing in the air and he would hit the bed and then we got a little more creative and i would grab his little hamstrings and I would flip him over and sometimes he would land right and sometimes he wouldn't but it didn't matter he was having great fun and then with when claire came um she really began to enjoy she was worried about it and she began to enjoy i would lay on my back and i would put her on my knees and then i would move my knees out, I want to catch her, and she would just giggle or throw up in my face, depending on, you know, nine months in, if she was a nurse. And she loved it. And then Samuel, when we got him, I would throw him into the lake from the, off the boat dock, and he wanted more and more and more. This is a childlike faith that grew for their father. They knew after experience after experience that they could trust me to catch them that I was someone that they could count on when I threw them about and strone them about. Childlike faith grew for their father. Listen, God's people are called to walk by faith, trusting in the protection and the goodness of the Father. And you know, I don't know how that hits in your life as an adult, exercising childlike faith. But I don't know about you, but right now, I don't know what step is next. In the the world of COVID, in the world we live in, we don't often know the next step if we fall off or not with our jobs, with our family, with how long we wear a mask or don't wear a mask. And we have to trust a God who is known, even in the unknown of what's Next, think about your own life and and the life of faith that God calls us to walk. Faith is just what you're counting on. So, the question this morning for you is What do I count on? Who do I count on? And this morning, we're introduced to a man of faith, a man of faults, but a man of faith. We're going to talk about what it looks like to walk by faith. What are you counting on, C3? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. In your Bibles, I think it's page 8, that's how far we've got. In the Bible on the end of your seat if you don't have one. And God is starting a new thing in Genesis chapter 12. He's starting a new thing. There's a shift from the the world to a particular people, Israel. With the father of the nation, Israel, Abraham. Kids, you know this song, maybe you don't know it anymore. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. You don't know it because we don't sing it anymore. Abraham, the father of this nation, of Israel. And so we're going to look at his faith and his faults for the next five weeks or so in the book of Genesis. The only thing interesting about Abraham's spiritual resume is this. He comes from the right bloodline. Do You remember the promise that Brent just talked about from Genesis 3, that the seed would crush the serpent's head And what you see and what we saw from Genesis 3 all the way through 11 is the scarlet thread of a hope of Messiah to come, a promise to come from Genesis 3. And we saw it when Adam and Eve had Seth, the replacement for Abel that Cain killed. And it said, Seth called upon the name of the Lord. And Seth's descendant was Noah. And we know Noah. He was delivered from the judgment of God and through his family. And then we come to his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And we see in Genesis chapter 9 that that the promise and the seed would come not through Japheth and not through Ham, but through Shem, the Semites. And we come to the end of chapter 11 in Genesis, and God has gone from his view of the whole world, and you see the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and they're no better than anybody else before them. And the Tower of Babel, and they decided on their own that they were going to make a great name for themselves. And then when you get to the end of chapter 11, and this is where we're going to pick it up today, when you get to the end of chapter 11, God starts telescoping into this one family. Interesting family. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to be. I want to show you, this is phenomenal, y'all. I want to show you God's sovereign, gracious calling of Abraham. In this text, his name hasn't changed yet. It's Abram show you God's gracious calling, and then I want to show you the promises that God offers to Abraham if he will go, and then you're going to see the expression of faith in Abraham in two or three different ways, and so I want to unpack this for you today, because my argument would be this, that we are called as well to live a life of faith. Even when we don't know what's next, God calls us to live a life of faith. And you see this great faith in Abraham. And you also see his faults in a few weeks too. Aren't you glad that he's not this perfect man of faith? As a matter of fact, the New Testament says about Abraham. It says that he is an example for you, believer, of faith. And so we need to follow his example in that. So Genesis chapter 12. Actually, we're going to start in verses, verse 27 of chapter 11. There's some helpful background that I need you to see as we come into this text so Genesis chapter 11 verses 27 and we'll be in 27 through chapter 12 verse 9 let's pick it up there if you've got a Bible page 8 if not it's on the screen let me read it and we'll make some sense of it Uh, verse 27 now these are the generations of Terah this is a new section Terah fathered Abram there he is Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred. Make note of this, underline this, the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Verse 30, now Sarah was barren, and she had no child. Take note of that. Verse 31, Terah took Abraham, the son, and Lot, and the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the daughter in law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. They didn't quite make it. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country. And your kindred and your father's house. To the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you. Note this. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old. And he departed from Haran. And Abram took his Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions and they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan their pilgrims when they came to the land of Canaan Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oaks of Moreh and at that time the Canaanites were in the land then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring I will give this land so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country, to the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still, going toward the Negeb. Let me give you some background about Abram and his life. Abram was from Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur of the Chaldeans, these are basically Babylonians. These people don't wor- worship Yahweh. They worship false gods. They worship a moon god named, check it out, Sin. This is who God calls to himself. He calls a family, specifically Abram, who's an idol worshiper. Joshua chapter 24, I think we have it there in the back. Joshua 24 verse 2. Tiger, we got that verse Thank you, brother. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. A little more background. Joshua is reiterating the covenant to the people of God. And he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served Yahweh? No. They served other gods. And then in verse 1, and yet, excuse me, I should say it this way, and yet, in verse 1, Yahweh comes to a man who's a worshiper of the moon god sin and comes to him and says, I want you. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. He calls a man from idolatry to himself. And this is your first point. God calls rebels to himself. That's God's plan. He calls rebels sovereignly by his grace to himself. Why call a man a family worships who worship the moon? Why would God call rebels? Why not find someone better? Well, the Bible says none are righteous. No, not one. We are all rebels. And God's sovereign calls a rebel and shows him his mercy and calls him out of his own idolatry. This is what God does for me and you. God calls sinners to himself By his grace, we are not deserving. You know what we usually do though in this is we think about our relative goodness. Like God calls us in our relative goodness, well, it makes sense that God would call you because you go to church and you're a good person and you're a good neighbor and you do this and you do that. And that's not how God works at all. That's not how he's working here. And I also don't think that God just looks through the corridors of time and says, you know what, Abram's gonna be a good guy. Ladies, I want you to tell me if Abram's a good guy. In the next passage, there's a famine. And they're going to go to Egypt. And he knows his wife is beautiful. And so he says to her, look, you're beautiful and they're going to want to take you. So they're going to kill me. So will you just say that you're my sister and go be the wife of Pharaoh? Do you think Abram is a good dude? (laughs) He's fearful. And you know what? He does it twice, ladies. He does it twice. He does it later with Abimelech, the king. He says, hey, same drill. How do you feel about that? He's not, God's not looking through the corridors in time and saying, this guy checks out, he's good. And he also had a child with one of the servants because they wouldn't believe the promise that's in this text. So he's not in and of himself, he doesn't possess this goodness. His resume doesn't check out. You know, I think about that and I think about my own life. I think about characters in the Bible that are like this. All the characters in the Bible and surely there is faith that Abraham uh, is going to demonstrate in just a minute that we're going to see. And yet it's encouraging to me as I look at the characters of Scripture that they're fallen sinners just like me and just like you. And they're in need of God's call and grace and mercy just like me. Now think of Saul in the New Testament. Remember Saul? He was the persecutor of Christians. He would go around city to city and follow, or follow people of the way, Christians, and he would persecute them. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8 that he was there and gave hearty approval for the death of Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr and Saul was saying, yes. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was religious, but he was far, far from God and yet Jesus came to him. Did Did he come to Jesus? No, on Damascus Road, Jesus showed up and he said to him, what are you doing? He confronted him and then he converted him and then he called him. So here's the deal with Paul. Not only did did God change him from what he was doing as a religious person, he used him in mighty ways. Much of your New Testament is a man who was killing, was a terrorist toward Christians. So God calls rebels to himself. Abram to Abraham, Saul to Paul. I've got two friends that I want to compare and contrast. I've got a friend named Kurt. I think I've mentioned him before. You know, when you're about a year into a pastorate and you're thinking about illustration, you're going, have I used that one before? I'm not really sure. So you're gonna to have to give me a little grace on this. But Kurt, okay, Kurt, just tu- my friend Kurt just turned 60 years old. You know what he wanted to do for his birthday? He's an adrenaline junkie. He rented a condominium in the path of Sally last week. So his sons, he and his family and his sons could experience a hurricane from the beach. I'm talking about a condominium on the beach. This guy is an adrenaline junkie. He is a rebel. He's from Alabama. He grew up in a Christian home. His parents taught him the gospel front and back. He could answer any Bible question. And yet he was a rebel and he rebelled and he got into drugs and alcohol in high school. His parents kicked him out of his house, out of their house. He came to Houston as a grown man. He was a roughneck out in the Gulf. Imagine that. He was a roughneck out in the Gulf. And he continued to do drugs and alcohol. He, was on Mon- he lived on the streets of Montrose. And God called him out of that. He called him to himself. And he saved him. And you know what Kurt did? He hung around Montrose for years, witnessing to people. And you know what else he did? He started a ministry. He started a ministry to troubled boys who were like him. It's called Youth Reach Houston. There's also a place in Alabama to reach for Christ these young boys who were just like him. That man was a rebel in any kind of consideration that you could find. And some of you are saying, he's still a rebel. He's just saved. <laughs> and I also have a friend named Josh. And Josh is an accountant. And he crosses T's and he dots I's and he grew up in the church. And he went to church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night. And he followed the rules. Kids, listen to this. And he followed the rules. All the rules. And he went to a Christian college, one of those where the boys walk on this side and the girls walk on this side. And he followed the rules. And he kept following the rules and then became a youth pastor. And about two years into his, him being a youth pastor, he came to his pastor. He was convicted by God that he didn't know Christ As a kid who grew up in the church, as a kid who did all the right things, he said, no, I'm self-righteous. I don't know Christ, and I've just got saved this week. Do you still want me as a youth pastor? I don't know if I'm ever going to have that, but that's an interesting situation. So he was not the rebel that you and I would think of. He was the good kid that did all the things right, but he was still a rebel in God's eyes. He went to church. He did all those things, but he was trusting in his own self-righteousness. He was trusting in his own works before God. And he turned as a rebel against God to Christ, to friends, two very different backgrounds, to rebels just like you and just like me. See, God unconditionally calls men like Abraham God unconditionally calls by his grace you and me. And I don't pretend to understand how, how all that works out, but I am a man and you are a person in need of his grace. And that's what he does to Abram, the idol worshipping man, Semite, who lives in Ur the Chaldeans, who broke, if the law was around, was breaking the first and greatest command and covenant of God. So whether you're a rule follower or a rule breaker, whether you're the moralist or the hedonist, God calls you to himself by his grace. Nothing can you bring. Only to the cross you and I cling. Well, God's grace calls Abraham to himself by no merit of his own. He calls some of his promises calls us to his promises. So so here's the situation. He calls him. Think of it as an interview. He says, here's what I want you to do. And now he's going to show him the promises that he will give him. Look at verses 2 and 3. Here are the promises that God promises Abraham up front if he will follow him and come. Look at it. Here are the promises. This is really important. If you want to understand the rest of the Old Testament, you want to understand the gospel and the seed of the gospel, this text is really important. Look at verse 2. It's, or the end of verse 1, go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land in which I will show you. He doesn't pull out his GPS and say, hey, your land is going to be right here. See, when you buy land, what do you want to know? You want to know if there's water on it. You want to know what kind of resources are on it. He doesn't show, God doesn't show him any of that. He just says, I'll show you later. How do you feel about that? If, if you're called out and, and you're looking at these promises that God is offering you to give you a new land, you want to more no, no, probably No, more details so you can do your SWOT analysis. And God says, no, I will show you. You're going to have to trust me. And look at it. I will show you and I will make you a great nation. So there's land. To make him a great nation means he has to have children. What did we read in chapter 11? Abraham's wife, Sarah. What did we read about her? She couldn't have any kids. And she's also, the Bible says, she's past the point of childbearing. She's past midlife. So here's, if if you're processing what God is saying as Abraham, who God is calling you out and he's promising you land that you don't know where it is, all right, he's promising you seed, you can't have kids. So think about the the nature of this. This is what God is going to promise. Land, seed, I'm going to make you a great nation and I will bless you. I'll give you physical blessing in the Old Testament. God's people were marked by both physical and spiritual blessing. And make your name great. So that you will, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So he's gonna be protected and cared for. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That this blessing, so there's land and there's seed and there's blessing. So listen, verse two and three. Here's what I wanna tell you. And then I'm gonna unpack it. God is making promises to Abraham. He's making promises to Abraham. Are these if-then promises? Abram, if you do this, then I will bless you. If you don't do this, then there will be cursings. That's not what he's doing. You know how many times he says, I will, in this text? Six times. I will do this. I will do this, 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 this. So, this is called a covenant. This is called an unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham. You know when you get to Deuteronomy... You see the Mosaic covenant that we've talked about a little bit? That's not an unconditional covenant. It's an if-then covenant that's dependent upon the people. These promises are not dependent on Abraham. They're dependent upon God himself. God is saying, I'm going to make this happen for you. That's the nature of God's promises for you and for me as well. And I want you to think with me about that. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. God's gonna bring this about. Listen, if you're a betting person and you know all those facts and you're Abraham, do you think God can pull this off? You just met him. Do you think God can pull this off? You probably have your doubts if you're Abraham. Really, how are you gonna make me a great nation? You're gonna take me from this land to this land and you won't even tell me where? You won't point to on a map and where it is? And you're gonna bless me and all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed? I don't even have a child yet. A lot of uh, barriers to believing in the promise, if you will, from a human perspective. But here's the story of the Old Testament. The beauty for us is we can look back and we can know. We can know if this happened or is happening or not. Do they come into the land? Do they come to Canaan eventually? Yes. They receive the land. Some of us believe that some of that is future, but they receive the land. God makes good on his promise. Are they made a great nation? This is a miracle nation. This is a woman who can't conceive. And she has Isaac. And then Jacob. And Jacob's sons. And 17 million Jews later. This is a great nation. This is the miracle nation of the Old Testament. That God raises up. Out of nothing. So this is what you see. You see God making good on his promises. Land, seed, and blessing. And you know what? Listen to the blessing part. Because this involves you. Because maybe you're saying, Well, this is a Jewish covenant. How does that affect me? Look at verse 3, at the end of verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God's promise comes to you as well. Many of you are not Semites. Many of you are Japhethites and Hamites, if you go do the research. If you, I don't know if Ancestry.com helps you out there to go that far back. But you're, most of the people in this room are not Jews. But this promise comes to you through Abraham. Look at the Bible and what the New Testament says. This is Paul. This isn't me. This is what the New Testament says. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. I think we have it here. Maybe. Galatians 3. Galatians 3.8. So what Paul says, or let me start in 7. Know then that this is, that, that those of faith who are sons of Abraham, it's people who come to Christ by faith. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, not just to the Jews, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, here it is, verse 3 from chapter 12, it's a direct quote, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Are you telling me that the final promise of Christ to come that will bless not just the Jew, but the rest of the world, is here in seed form? That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the blessing that comes out of Genesis 12. See, God has given you even a better promise the prep, better promise of the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And that's what first 2 Corinthians chapter 2 chapter 1 verse 20 says. Not sure if we can get it back up yet. I'll go there. Test my Bible skills and getting to first 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. It says this. We sing about this every Sunday. Yes and amen. The song we just sang it comes thanks Gatlin for Singing biblical, Luke, David, singing biblical songs for us. The song Yes and Amen comes right out of here. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is why it is through him, Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, like Abraham who was trusting in the promise of God then that he couldn't see, we trust Christ. He is our sure hope in life and in death And in eternity. He's the promise. He's the ultimate promise that Genesis chapter 12 speaks of. Here's the point. You can take God's promises to the bank. Because they are found ultimately in Christ. And what Christ did on a cross for you and for me. All his promises are yes and amen. That's the story of the Bible. Listen. Do you believe the promise that Christ offers you this morning. Do you believe that promise that He promises you forgiveness of sin? If you trust and have faith and turn from your sins and trust Him and depend upon Him and what His finished work on a cross has done, done for you. That's the promise. Forgiveness of sin, satisfaction in life, and eternal reward. That beats a land promise. There's an eternal home that you have in Christ. The seed is Him. He's the final seed that makes the promise right. And blessing, there's a misnomer today that if you come to know Christ, that there are all of these material possessions. God may do that for you. He may not. But the ultimate spiritual blessings that Christ offers you, both in this life with the joy of the fruit of the Spirit and the hope of eternity, is greater than any physical blessing that you can have. So this is found in Christ. Spurgeon says about God's promises this, particularly in the gospel. God's promises in the gospel are longer than life. They are broader than sin. They are deeper than the grave and higher than the clouds. That's the gospel and what it does for the believer in Christ, the person who comes. So do you know that message? So here's the deal. God calls Abraham and he makes him promises. But what is Abraham gonna do? How's he going to respond? Look at verse four. Here's how he responds. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He obeyed. Here's your next point God's pilgrims express their faith through risk loaded obedience. Through risk loaded obedience. Consider the cost. If you're Abraham, consider the cost. You're going to leave your country. How do you feel about leaving your country? You're going to leave your kingsmen, your family, much of your family. You're leaving behind an Ur of the Chaldees. There's cost involved. There's risk involved in faith and trusting this God that you just met. There's risk here. There's cost. There's uncertainty. What land? My wife's barren. How does this work? He takes a step of faith, risky faith, uncertain faith, costly faith. But here's what he's rooting it in. And I wish I had more in verse 1. I wish verse 1 gave me more about what the experience, if you will, with God was. And the Lord said to him. The New Testament helps us out a little bit here. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, before he's stoned, he gives testimony to the gospel. And he says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. He appeared to Abraham and Ur the Chaldeans. So before he went to her round, he appeared to him, the God of glory. Here's what happens. And I think it probably bears out in your life and my life as well. When we see and come in contact with the God of glory, when you came to faith in Christ, everything changed. The way you made decisions changed. The way you risked changed. The uncertainties of life were filled with the glory of God and the knowledge that he's got your back. That's why Abraham can take the risk that he takes. Because he's met the God of glory. You know, we don't see Abraham in that experience, but we see other people in the Bible who experience God. Remember Isaiah? His response? He falls and he says, Holy, holy, holy. In other places we say, Lord, here I am. When they experience God, Lord, here I am, send me. When Jesus says to the disciples, Are you going to go too? What do they say? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. See, I think Abraham's experience of God, the living true God, changed everything about his decision making. I want you to think about that in your own life when maybe you came to Christ and things changed. I don't know about you, but people started asking me a lot of questions. Why are you making this decision instead of that decision? I was in college and I had family go, why are you pursuing this path now rather than this one? This one looks really good. This one fits your gifts. It fits X, Y, and Z. And my only answer was, this is where God has called me. This is what God has called me toward. Yeah, but that's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah, you don't have answers of what that leads to. I know. But it doesn't matter. Because God has called me. I know God through his son, Jesus. You experienced that? The risk-loaded life of faith, trusting in what God has called of you. Listen, we think about that in, in life right now. We think about that with COVID and the unknown steps in front of us. When's the last time you took a spiritual risk I don't know about you, but I don't like risk. I hit it to the center of the green and try to make the 25-foot putt. I don't know how, don't know how you make decisions. Perhaps you're more conservative with decisions. Perhaps you're a risk taker. But what is God calling you toward? Maybe it's confession of sin. Maybe it's to share the gospel with your neighbor even though you know That's going to be weird and maybe you risk reputation. Maybe there's unknowns and risk-taking faith. There are. But this is what Abraham's willing to do because he's met God. Corey ten Boom said it this way, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be willing. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future. All of our futures are unknown. To a known God. So, faith expressed in risky obedience. When's the last time you took a spiritual risk? There's something else, though. Faith is expressed in another way. You see here in this text, verse 6 through 9. In verses 6 through 9, I love this. You know, when you skim through the Bible, sometimes you miss some details. And this is one of those nuggets that you'll take where you, you might not have seen it by just reading it. But a little research helps you. In verses 6 through 9... Here's the point. God's pilgrims express their faith through worship and witness. You see worship and witness going on. This is how he expresses his faith. So he sets out toward the land of Canaan. And then God comes back to him and says, your offspring is going to get this land. Notice something. Abraham never gets the inheritance himself. The The book of Hebrews says he doesn't get one square inch of it himself. He doesn't experience that land promise himself. But his offspring will. But look at this. Look at their worship. After God comes back to him and says, your offspring are going to be given this land, look what he does. Look what he does in verse 7, the middle of verse 7. So he built an altar to the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Have you seen an altar before in Genesis? Remember when Noah came out of the, out of the ark And God protected him from judgment. What does he do? He builds an altar and makes sacrifice to God. And God says it was pleasing to him. He's worshiping. He's sacrificing and worshiping God. He's setting up a place of remembrance to go, here's what God did here. And that's exactly what Abraham is doing as he goes into the land of Canaan. And you see it, he does it twice. He does it first in Shechem, by the oaks of Moreh. Go do some research on Shechem and the Oaks of Moray. It's, or I'll just tell you. How's that? (laughs) This is how this works, right? I get to study. You get to learn. Shechem, in that day, this was a place of worship. It was not a place of Yahweh worship. It was a place where they worshiped the moon god that they were worshiping before. Likely, possibly, Abraham and Tamar and his family had already been to this place and worshiped the moon god Sin. He goes to Shechem and he goes to the Oaks of Moreh and the weird mystical culture of false deities back then. Places in the desert where there were oaks were, were places that they saw as places of power, of presence of their, of their little G gods. And so you go to Shechem, which is a known place, of false worship, and then they go to the Oaks of Moray. This is literally the place of teaching, false teaching. So they go to the place of false teaching and false worship, and what does Abram do? He sets up an altar, not to the false god, but to Yahweh, of what he's done, that he'd called him, that he'd promised him, land, seed, and blessing, and he sets up an altar there, right in front of the Oaks of Moray, where people would come and gather to the false god and learn. So he is not only worshiping, he is witnessing. You know, do you notice in the text where it says the Canaanites were all around? He's doing this publicly. He's worshiping publicly. So the next time the Canaanites come for teaching, and the next time they come to worship, there's going to be an altar right there. An altar not to the false gods, but to Yahweh, the living and true God. And you know what he does? And then he goes to Bethel the house of God, between Bethel, the house of God, and ruin, A.I., and he sets up, and what does he do again? He sets up an altar, the second one of four that he's going to set up. He sets up an altar, and he worships. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 4, descendant before him, Seth, called upon the name of the Lord. So God's pilgrims not only risk faith and obedience, they also worship and witness what are you doing to build into your life a place to stop as a pilgrim you ever read pilgrims progress as I was studying this text it just made me think of pilgrims progress it's a great novel I think it's the first novel ever translated in or, or written in English over 200 languages if you haven't read it you can get the kid version for your kids it's an allegory it's an allegory of the Christian life it's a great book to read to consider the sojourning that a Christian walks through. I encourage you toward that. What are you building into your life to stop and get, give God praise? Are you, do you have a place in where you go to read and to pray? Are you telling others about who he is, both proclaiming it and demonstrating it? Well, to close, let me, let me, let me tell you this story. There's a man who's crossing the desert who is dying of thirst. And he comes to a shack. And in the shack there is a well and a water pump. If you know how a well with a water pump works, you have to have water to prime the pump. He has no water and yet he notices something. He notices a jug to prime the pump. He notices a jug to prime the pump with a note on it. And it said, read this note Before you drink, here's the note. There is just enough water, stay with me. There is just enough water in this jug to prime the pump. But not if you drink some first. This well has never gone dry. Dry even in the worst of times. Pour the water in the top of the pump and pump the handle quickly. After you have had a drink, refill the jug for the person who comes after you what would the man do? What would he do? If he follows the instructions on the message, what does he risk? He risks, as someone about to die, the chance of pouring out all the water and getting nothing if the promise of the message isn't true and the, or the pump fails. See, let me liken this to you and to me. Like Abraham, a person must act in belief without first receiving. Abraham didn't receive it. He had to act in faith and must trust in the truth of the promise. And that's what a life of faith looks like. A life of faith looks like stepping out and trusting the truth of the promise that Christ is who he says he is, that he's died on a cross for your sins and mine, and that one day when we die, that the hope of eternity and the hope of forgiveness of sins because of his resurrection will be true in our life. And we walk in that faith each and every day as you make a decision, as you live life, maybe you're living life right now with the uncertainty of loss of somebody close to you and trying to figure out what life looks like without them. Or maybe there's sin in your life and you're going, I know I need to confess this to God, I know I need to deal with this, I need your help. And maybe it's the knowledge and the uncertainty of going, you know, I need somebody in my life to help me, to mentor me, to help me grow in Christ, but that's a big step for me, to take that risk of obedience. And maybe God is calling you to to other things. I, I hesitate to say bigger things because all of those things are steps. What does it look like for you to take the next step, the risky next step like abraham believing in the promise that god has given you through christ so your takeaway is this walk by faith trusting in the promise of god particularly the good news of the gospel where all of the promises are yes in christ let me pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for this text and these promises that were made to abraham Thank you for calling us to yourself as believers in Christ. I pray for one here that does not know the life-giving message of the gospel. I pray that you would do your work by faith and call them to yourself. That they might experience the promise of God. And Lord, I pray for those here that know Christ. And maybe we've got to do a little working out our spiritual muscles Maybe we've spent time, maybe we need to first confess, Lord, that we've spent so much time in our own plans, and our own ways, that releasing that is hard. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would do a work in people's hearts to go, you know what, I need to leave this with God. I need to trust God to take the next step. The step that he's calling me toward. By faith, trusting in him. We thank you for a time of worship, a time in your word this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.